0: Open the Word of God, please, to John chapter 6, and let's read verses 53 and 54. We'll focus on those. Chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, verses 53 and 54. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, You have no life in yourselves. He, and it really means the one, it means uh, angel as much as Dustin, the one, male or female, who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him or her up on the last day. During the first 300 years of the Christian church, the capital C church, the John 3.16 church, that Organism of all born-again believers, doesn't matter what color, country, culture, denomination, generation, for the first 300 years of our existence, the Christian church faced persecution by the Roman Empire. And hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Christians were killed for their faith. And you might say, why? Why would they be so threatened by us? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of the major charges that was levied against the early Christians, was the fact that all of us are cannibals. Now, it took a lot to offend the ancient Romans morally, because they put up with all kinds of nonsense. But cannibalism, Sue, is where they drew the line. Okay, And so that leads us to some questions. Why in the world would the Roman government ever think Christians were cannibals? And what exactly did our Lord mean here in this verse where He tells us to eat His flesh and drink His blood? Let's think about that today, but let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's Word and also that uh, God will bless those who serve and protect our right under the First Amendment of the Constitution to do this without any official persecution. That's our active military Peace officers, firefighters, and, and those good folks. So we um, Wolf dig, if you would, lead us in prayer in that direction. Amen. Thank you. Okay, for our abstract thought warmer upper, uh, I want you to interpret this. We're going to try to interpret uh, John six fifty three through 54 in a few minutes. But let's try to interpret this together. After a strike, the entire team will celebrate. And what does that mean? Well, it kind of depends on what, what strike means and how we're going to know what strike means. We've got to find out, what, what do you think? What do you think it means? It kind of depends on what the term team means. Uh, last week, we emphasized context. We said uh, context is the key to interpreting Scripture and really interpreting anything, including your wife. Um, or your pastor, but context is the key, right, Holly? But context includes not just reading the verse before and verse after, but correlation. Anything that's relevant elsewhere in Scripture, we have to consult that. So, yeah, you guys didn't go for the bait. I thought somebody would say a baseball team, but we're going to have to figure out what team we're talking about so we can figure out what the strike is talking about. So let me give you some possibilities, okay? Did you think about a bowling team? That would work. That would make sense. I still don't know if that statement out of context refers to a bowling team, but I tend to think baseball first when I read something like that. But a bowling team, would that make sense? After the strike, they're all going to celebrate, right? How about this? This is a platoon on a military mission. They're going to strike a bunch of bad guys. And if in God's will, they kill and capture all the bad guys, and none of the good guys get hurt, they will celebrate after that strike, after that military strike, right? This is as recently as yesterday in the news. The United Auto Workers are considering striking, and if uh, they're going to use that to get what they want uh, after the strike, hopefully everybody's going to kiss and make up, and uh, the team will celebrate. And then there's the Astros, my personal favorite team right now. I'm a little bit fickle, but uh, they're fun to watch. But yeah, the point is, context is the key to interpreting anything, including your Bible. And context includes correlation. We talked about that last week. And we're going to continue the same theme as we look at this very interesting and pretty audacious and pretty graphic and totally unforgettable statement that Jesus says, "...unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood," Uh, you can't go to heaven, especially what he's saying. So what does that mean? Well, let's correlate that statement with its broad context, and we'll look at the immediate context. The, the broad context of this passage is the overall Gospel of John. And boy, I love the Gospel of John, and it's, a, it's just this, this epic description of the life of Christ after Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been written and now he's going to say, let me tell you how salvation and spirituality works. Let me tell you about the engine of that. You already know about the basic facts of the life of Christ and the basic dynamics. But let me talk about how it works. So that's the 21 chapters. You've got a very beautiful organized introduction and a very neat organized conclusion. But the heart of the book breaks down into three parts. First, we have the seven signs. Jesus does at least 35 specific miracles that are delineated in the four Gospels, but he would have done hundreds that are generally referred to. But John picks seven specific ones. The first one is changing water into wine or water into Kool-Aid if you're a Baptist uh, to keep a wedding reception going. And the last one is the recita- resuscitation, not the resurrection, but the physical resuscitation. It's easier for me to say. Uh, Giving Lazarus his physical life back, right? He didn't resurrect him because he would have died again. But that's pretty spectacular. So you get these miracles, to get more and more spectacular. And that word sign means an act that points to something important. And the sign miracles of Jesus pointed to the fact that he was who he claimed to be. He claimed to be the son of God in human form. He claimed to be the exclusive issue in salvation and the exclusive issuer. The only issue and the only one who can give you everlasting life. So that's the first part of the book. Our passage is going to take place right after the fourth and fifth sign, the feeding of the five thousand, which was really thirteen thousand. Now, how can five? You're an engineer. How can five thousand equal thirteen thousand? Because you know what? The Greek text says Jesus fed about five thousand aner, and that's the masculine, Pacific term for men. So if you have 5,000 men, you probably have about 5,000 wives, and you probably have an average of three. Nowadays, we only average 1.7 children, but back then they averaged a lot more. So you have at least 13,000 people in the feeding of the 5,000. But the Gospels downplay the miracles. They'll tell you what happened, but they don't try to explain it. You read other ancient theological literature, they have all this kind of hocus-pocus, all this craziness they describe when they do it. The, The Gospels just say it. We have no idea how he did it, but he did it again. And John records seven specific miracles that validate that Jesus is the object of saving faith. He's the only one who can give salvation. URD stands for Upper Room Discourse. Just before he goes to Gethsemane, he tells the assembled believing apostles, Judas leaves the room at 1330, and then Jesus really teaches about the spiritual dynamics of how you abide in Christ as a Christian. How you walk with him after he's no longer physically walking around with you anymore. That's the key to all biblical spirituality. If whatever your theory of spirituality doesn't line up with the Upper end Discourse, you need to change it because you've got to correlate with that. Then what's the ultimate sign that Jesus is who he claimed to be? The resurrection. His resurrection. His resurrection validates the saving power of his death. A dead savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. But Bobby, the risen one's the only one who can So that's the gospel of John. But notice, uh, hanging above all of this body, this major portion of the book, is a purpose statement. So turn to John 20, and he's going to tell you why he wrote this volume, this book, and kind of what his ground rules are for writing it. He just specifically says in John chapter 20, verse 31, 30 and 31 I should say John says as he finishes the body of the book and I know there's another chapter but that's the organized conclusion that for many other signs many other miracles that prove Jesus was who he claimed to be Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book you can read about at least 28 of them in Matthew, Mark and Luke and he would have done hundreds but these the ones I've chosen to include I'm not trying to tell you everything I could tell you about Jesus I could, I could tell you a lot more but these are written that you might believe. That's a special word. Not gonosco, but pistuo, which means active, receptive trust. It's not just believing that Jesus did these things, but believing in him for salvation. That You might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who came to give salvation, the Son of God, and believing you'd have life in his name. So you look at that and you realize that the Gospel of John 90 times says... Pistuo, believing in him is how you receive. Believe in his name, believe he's the Christ, believe in him for salvation. They're all talking about the same thing. Uh, It's not mental assent, it's the mind and the will. Lord, I'm a sinner, and it's my fault. I can't fix it, but you can because you paid for my sins and rose again, and I want you to. That's saving faith. Well, how about repentance? Repentance. You can't express saving faith without saving repentance. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The word for repentance doesn't mean to feel really sorry. It means to change your mind. There is a word that means to feel sorry, metamelami. The only person who melamized in the gospel is Judas after he feels bad about what he did. He really felt sorry about that. Metanael means to change your mind. Uh, it can't mean to feel sorry for sins because in the King James it's often translated... Uh, talking about that... Uh, well, let's do it this way. Um, let's say David Bearden is running 10 miles uh, tomorrow morning and, he, and the wind's coming out of the north. Okay, And David runs 5 miles due north that way. But he's going to run 10. And he's running into the wind. And he has a certain time, X. Then he turns around and he runs the next 5 miles back home with the wind. It's He's going... South, and it's coming out of the north, right? He's going to have a faster time, even though he's more tired, right? And he might say, well, I said, Brad, David, that, that's that's Y. X is his time into the wind. Y is with the wind. And he might say, well, I, hey, Brad, I ran uh, X today going into the wind, but after the wind changed, I ran at Y. Did the wind change? Yeah, in the Old Testament, we have God repenting. Multiple times. He's not feeling sorry for a sense, And he's not even changing his mind, really. Any more than that wind change. That's a figure of speech saying other people changed, so the process was different than was first put out. But it's not him changing, it's the wind changing. David said, after the wind changed, I ran a faster time. The wind didn't change, David changed. But relative to the way he was running, it was different. So... Think about it. In order to trust Christ as Savior, you've got to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, I've got it. We live in a culture where sin is considered hate speech. You can't tell people they're sinners anymore without a possibility of a lawsuit or losing your job. Okay, But the Holy Spirit will convict people who are going to come to faith that they are sinners and it's their fault. Now, maybe your mom wasn't all she should have been. Maybe your dad, maybe your pastor wasn't all he could have been. But it's ultimately it's your fault, okay? So the Spirit convicts you of you got a problem, right? Righteousness. What do most people do about their sin? They try to be more righteous. They try to make up. Uh, all the world religions are designed to kind of, uh, put a veneer over a sinful person, right? But that can't work. And so God changes your mind, not just about your sin and your guilt, but your inability to save yourself. And then right judgment means you've got to face God one on one. So you can't really trust God Christ as Savior without changing your mind about your sin, yourself, and your savior. If I were to say, let's say uh uh Connor, I was gonna pick on you, Zach, but I will use Connor today. If let's say I wanted Connor to come up here, he's sitting down there right now, I could say it one of three ways. I could say, come here. Connor, come here. Now I mean, you have to do it. This is just an illustration. I could say, Connor, come here. That's like saying believing in Christ. I could say, Connor, don't stay over there. That's like changing your mind about your sin, yourself, and your Savior, so you trust Jesus Christ. Or I could put them both together. Hey, don't come over here. Don't stay over there. Those aren't three different things. They're three different ways of describing the same thing. 90 times in the Gospel of John, where he's saying, I'm writing this whole book so you'll know that Jesus is the Christ you will believe and have life. 90 times we're told that the Terms for receiving salvation is believing in Christ. Not just believing that he did certain things, but believing that he's the Christ who's the Lamb of God who died for your sins and rose again. Uh, I love the example of the leper in Mark 1. You know, he's, humanly speaking, beyond help. And what does he say to Jesus? Jesus, of course, and he says, Hey, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You know what he's saying? I got a problem. I can't fix it. You can. I want you to. And what does Jesus say? Well, keep the commandments, do something. He says, you're clean right now, just like that. That's saving faith. It's a rational act. It's not a meritorious work. It's the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ. So we know, based on the broad message of the Gospel of John, salvation comes through believing in Christ. One of the first statements, although it happens before this, is in John 1.12, where we're told as many, even though most people won't go this far, as many, each individual who receives Him, that's not the mind, it's, it's the mind and the will. To them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe, o ace autan, who believe in Him. Uh, I can believe mentally that chair will hold me up, but I'm not depending on it to hold me up, and this won't help. Now I'm depending on it. Have you depended on Christ as Savior? That's the way this works but to the one who does not work, but to him who believes in Christ who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. So that's the overall teaching of the book. So when we read about eating flesh and drinking blood, you're going to think maybe he's using that as a graphic metaphor as opposed to adding additional terms, since we're told 90 times in the book, believing is receiving. Okay. Now here's chapter 6. Let's move from the overall book to the chapter we're in. We've got big miracles being performed. The fourth and fifth sign miracles in this gospel of seven leading to the resurrection. We've got the feeding of the 5,000, but we already told you it's more like what number? 13,000. One little boy's happy meal is the basis. It just keeps coming. The, the creation happens in his hand. He just keeps passing it out. So that's a sign to the masses. Then that night he walks on the water. That's a sign to his men. So he's clearly validating his claims. He's not just making claims. He's validating that what he says is true. Second part of this chapter is the teaching unit. Many people call it the bread of life discourse about Jesus, right? In verse 26, we're back in chapter 6 again. In verse 26, Jesus interacts with the same crowd that he fed the day before, the feeding of the 13,000, and they come to him. They find him on the other side of the lake and he's not real thrilled because he says, you seek me not because you saw signs, miracles that prove my claims about being the exclusive issue of eternal life, but because you ate of the loaves yesterday and you got your stomachs full. These people just want another free meal. That's all they're wanting from him. And they're thinking he might be a political messiah that will overturn the Roman Empire's uh, grip on their nation. But that's all they're looking for is food, circuses, and political relief. Verse 29, he says, don't obsess on the physical. Think about the spiritual. Don't just think about life now. Think about everlasting life in the future, which you will receive by believing in me. In fact, if you look at verse 29, chapter 6, it says, this is what you have to do. Believe in the one whom God the Father sent. That sounds like John three sixteen 16 to me. God the Father loved the fallen world so much, he sent his son. What did his son ever do? Perfect, righteous life, substitutionary atoning, sacrifice, payment on the cross, valid by, resur- by the resurrection, that whosoever, and the Greek text says, all the ones who believe, even Dustin, even Brad, even Steve, shall not perish future lake of fire, but have everlasting life. Uh, let's, let's go back to chapter 6. Let's look at verse 30. We're looking at the context in chapter 6. So we're going to understand this very graphic, unforgettable figure about eating and drinking, eating um, flesh drinking blood so they said to him this crowd most of whom aren't believers at all they're just looking for another handout what do you do then Jesus for a sign that we may see and believe in other words you haven't done enough we know you took one little boy's lunch and fed 13,000 but that's not enough we need more you know they're trying to play him the jerk in his chain they're trying to uh, motivate him to do more miracles for them they said our fathers after Moses let them out of of uh, bondage, they wandered around for forty years, and God gave them manna every day, except uh, on the Sabbath. They got double portion the day before the Sabbath. Our fathers ate the manna, bread in the wilderness, as is written back in the Old Testament. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you that bread out of heaven, but it was my Father, God the Father, who gives you the true bread out of heaven. And manna was anticipating the Messiah." The manna was a picture of the Messiah, who Jesus is. Look at this. For the bread of God is that, and we'd say, is the one which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. He was in, you know, he was in the world and the world's made by him. But the, his own did not receive him. The world did not receive him. But there are many exceptions. Then he said to them, and then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. They're still thinking about physical bread. Okay? Man, it was just physical bread, but he's saying this is bigger, much bigger than the passage Mike read so well. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I'm the Messiah. I'm the object of saving faith. I'm the issue, the exclusive issue and issue of eternal life. The one who comes to me will not hunger. The one who believes in me, we're believing. That's the, that's the tangible concrete terms, he's describing it in other ways just to keep their attention because that's a good teaching technique. We'll never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and you saw me feed 13,000 of you with one little boy's lunch yesterday but you do not pistuo. Oh, they believe he did the miracle, Jeff. They don't doubt that. They don't believe he's the sa- Savior who's going to save them from hell, forgive their sins. They just think he's going to be another political catalyst that will give them what they want politically. Uh, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not. That's a double negative in the, in the Greek. Double negatives in English cancel each other out. I could have said, uh, I'm not going to church this morning. And then I changed my mind so I'm not, not gonna go to church. If I'm not, not gonna go, I'm going, right? And because it's redundant and hard to follow, we don't like double negatives in English. But in the Greek text, double negatives are emphatic negation. You underline it. There's no way you're going to be cast out once you come to him in faith. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. God the Father is the architect, the planner of the plan of salvation. Jesus is the active agent. He takes a subordinate role. He doesn't have subordinate status, but he takes a subordinate role. He's the sendee. God the Father is the sender. God the Father loved the world so much he gave his son. Uh, Christian service involves maybe having rank but no authority. You're doing more service than anybody else, ideally. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, rich, poor, good, bad, white, black, Who believe, who beholds the son with the eyes of faith and believes in him. That's a clear statement again, that is to believe. Active receptive trust has everlasting life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I always say, is that any good? He's the object of saving faith. Look at the initial reaction here, Angel. Look at verse 41, 42. Therefore the Jews, this is not an anti-Semitic remark for, for John, the Jews, men are always the Jewish leaderships or in Jerusalem or their representatives. Now we're in Capernaum here. There's no way those uh, elites would even go to flower country very often. But here they've got eyes and ears following Jesus, trying to find stuff they can use against him. So these are bad guys with a bad agenda. Therefore, the Jewish officials who had been sent by the leaders in Jerusalem to kind of find stuff we can criticize Jesus about, were grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. Robbie, that's an audacious, crazy thing to say, unless it's true. And it's not audacious and crazy because it's actually true, but they didn't believe it. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, Yeshua? He's just that carpenter guy. He's the son of Joseph, virgin conception they don't know about, whose father and mother we know. How does he say I came down out of heaven? He's crazy, you know? And they, of course, think he's demon-possessed, ultimately. Drop down to verse 47. Looking at the context for the eating The flesh drinking the blood. Truly, truly I say to you, he who believes has everlasting life. Again, clear statement of the terms is believing, not taking communion or not cannibalism. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna, the physical manna in wilderness, and they died. But this, and he's pointing to himself, is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, and we're just told the one who believes has eternal or everlasting life, he's using that metaphor. Not physical bread, but spiritual bread. You've got to eat, appropriate, take in, receive that bread, and you have everlasting life. He's using that metaphor. That sets us up for this more graphic metaphor in verses 53 and 54. That person will live forever, and the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Boom. And then look, the Jews, that's not anti-Semitic, that's not about the Jewish representatives from the home office in Jerusalem trying to find things to bicker about with Jesus, began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're totally misunderstanding what he means, and he does stuff like that on purpose to force you to really think it through beyond the fifth grade level. Uh, drop down to, uh, verse 60. So we've got these big miracles Jesus performs in this context, feeding of the 13,000, walking on the water, the teaching that he's the bread of life, he's the issue of eternal life, believe on him, and he uses some metaphors about bread, and now he's going to talk about flesh and blood in a minute. We'll come back to that. But here's the result. This truth that Jesus is the issue is very divisive. We live in a culture that doesn't like division, you know, uh, diversity is our strength. Not necessarily. you kidding? Sometimes it can be a big problem, uh, those blanket statements. Uh, you see two basic reactions, desertion and dedication. Look at verse 60. So he's being, being very clear. He's using a graphic metaphor for appropriation in verses 53 and 54. But the vast number of these people know what he's driving at, and they don't buy it. Therefore, verse 60, many of his disciples, mathetes means a learner, a listener, and nothing more. You've got to interpret in context. What does strike mean? We said uh, after the strike, the team will be happy. You don't know until you have context. Here we're talking about people who were listening because they were fed the day before, hoping he's going to set up a big welfare system and throw off the Roman yoke. That's all they want. That's all they expect him to do. They want nothing more. They don't believe he's come out of heaven to be the Messiah. Therefore, many of his disciples, his methetes, when they heard this, all of this about believe on me, I'm the living bread, I'm the issue, said, this is a difficult statement. Now, we didn't know he really thought this. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that they're grumbling at this, said, this is a problem because this is the whole program, okay? Okay. If you don't like this, uh, you're not really with us at all at any level. He's the Messiah. He's the manna. He's the exclusive issue of eternal life. He's the object of saving faith. Drop down to verse 66. As a result of this, him being so audacious to claim he's what it's all about. He's the Savior. As a result of this, this teaching unit, many of his disciples... The ones who were looking for more, better food and faster, uh, better government programs to provide their physical needs, withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Okay? And again, these were not believers in the of sense. These were people looking for more free food. And look at this. And I think the disciples are standing there, the twelve, are sitting. They like crowds. The bigger the better. These people follow this. Gotta be good. We're getting a big market share here. Then Jesus says something so audacious, 98% of them leave. And they're looking at him the way some of you look at me, looked at me last week, like I just shot your dog. They're looking at Jesus like he just shot their dog. And he looks at him and says, Do you guys want to go too? Meaning. If you don't really believe, I'm the Christ, I'm the living manna, I'm the object of salvation, then you can go too. Now, he knows they believe. He just that They're just looking at the overt reaction. And all the people leaving away, many of his disciples who were never even believers, don't want to follow him anymore. And Jesus says, you know, if that offends you, what I just told them about me being the object of saving faith, go ahead and leave too. There was no compromise on that. We can't change that. That's what the whole deal is. And Simon Peter, who often gets, gets criticized, uh, not so much from this pulpit, because I've, I've said so many dumb things, I put Peter in the shade, man, you kidding? Just, just, for, just listening, just from the pulpit, I've said dumb stuff. Not Much less to my wife, she, she's got a book. In fact, the reason I'm retiring is so she can write this book finally. All the dumb things <laughs> pastors sometimes say at home, you know, that's gonna be the book. It'll be a bestseller. The only question is, who's gonna play me in the, in the movie? You know, the things you gotta think about when you're a tyrant. So, but Jesus basically says, you know, if this is a problem for you, you can leave too. Okay? And, uh, Simon Peter answered and hits a home run. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You're the one who's the whole object of salvation. You have the words of eternal life. We have believed. Now, one of them hasn't. Judas never was a believer. But we, the rest of us, have believed and have come to know you are the Messiah, you are the Savior, you are the Lamb of God, you are the bread of, of life, you are the Holy One of God. And I love that passage. That's the context, okay? Now look at the actual content of these verses we read at the beginning. Jesus said to them, verse 53 and 54, Truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, that's the title for Christ, Son of Man, goes back to Daniel 7, and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. What does the Old Testament law say about blood? You, you can't ingest it in any form. Okay? He's not calling in to break the Old Testament law. He's using a very graphic, a very unforgettable, audacious figure of speech to make it necessary for these disciples who are coming for the wrong reason to realize, we got to get out of here, because this guy actually thinks he's the Messiah. He thinks he's the object of saving faith, using a very graphic metaphor, not physical, but uh, metaphorical. Truly, truly, I say to you, when he says truly, truly, it means it's extra important. I tend to think anything he says is probably really, really important, but this is really important. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Let me say it again. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has everlasting life and I will raise that person up on the last day. Now, I think the shorthand way I would deal with this passage if somebody was throwing it at me and really wanted to know what it meant and didn't want to just argue, that's verse 60, uh, 54, I should say, right? Eat flesh, drink blood, i raise it up. I would say, do you know what? Uh, although like five different times in this passage, Jesus says, believing is how you receive it. And he uses this metaphor like eating the bread or now eating the flesh, drinking the blood, anticipating his death on the cross. But there is a fraternal twin statement in this same passage. Now look, the last part of that, he says, the one who does X has everlasting life and I'll raise that person up on the last day. Is there any other statement, that's verse 54, in this passage where Jesus, and that, this is calculus, this is arithmetic. Okay, <laughs> put it that way. Is there another passage? Notice, he he expects you to understand what he says here based on what he said earlier. You always use the clear, concrete statements to allow you to understand the more complicated ones. That's that's pretty graphic. That's unforgettable. That's going to force those disciples who are there for the wrong reasons to realize what this is all about, and they don't want it. But look what he says. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him and I put that in italics, not because it's implied by the text, but just to show you how you've got everyone who beholds the Son and believes is analogous to eating, flesh, drinking, blood, because the bold there is exactly the same result. The one who beholds the Son and believes in him, pistuo es atan, saving, active receptive trust, changing your mind about your sin, you've got it, and you're responsible for it. Righteousness, you can't manufacture it, and judgment is coming. So you throw yourself in the mercy of the court, trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, has uh yeah, when he believes in him will, will have everlasting life, I myself have raised him up on the last day. Sherry, you see that? Last day, last day, everlasting life, everlasting life. That's the same result. This is a clear statement, this is a graphic metaphor to get your attention, to make it unforgettable. And you've got to think above a fifth grade level, maybe to process that. Uh, and maybe some people miss it at first, but if you really want it, God will help you to figure out what it's talking about. So that, that'd be the short way I would deal with that myself, but uh, let's look at some other examples on your handouts there. I just list some of the statements where in this context, he just makes it clear, the terms for receiving salvation, it's not eating his flesh and drinking his blood literally, but believing in him, appropriating him. When you eat, you you appropriate something, Right? Uh, back in 35 and 36. Not 1935, but uh, chapter six thirty-five, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me and never thirst. But I said, some of you don't believe. Some of you just think I'm a political hack, right? 47 through 51. Truly I say to you, he who believes has everlasting life. I'm the bread of life. See that pattern? Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe And he knew they didn't really believe in a saving sense. He knew Judas didn't believe and never believed. And then uh, 66-69, to as a result, many of these surface disciples who were looking for another handout were offended. They leave. They don't want what he's offering. They just want more free food. So Jesus looks at the 12 and says, if that's a problem for you, you can leave too. And Peter says, we have believed. And we've come to know you are the Holy One of God. So... What do, we, what do we say about chapter uh, 6, verse 53 and 54? What I would say, Dustin, is this is uh, an impossible to ignore, unforgettable, audacious truth claim about Jesus saying you've got to personally believe in him. You've got to appropriate him for salvation. Let me punt to a higher source, a study Bible. This happens to be the MacArthur study Bible on these verses. Jesus' point in these verses about eating and drinking the flesh and the blood was an analogy that has spiritual rather than literal significance. Just as eating and drinking are necessary for physical life and involves you appropriating that. You know, looking looking at the aspirin uh, bottle will not help your headache. You can look at it all day long. And you can believe it could help your headache. You've got to appropriate it. It's not going to work, right? Right. Uh, so when you ask grandma, did you get the prescription filled? That's not enough. Did you take your pill, your heart pill, or whatever you're taking? Uh, just as eating and drinking are necessary for physical life, so also is belief in his sacrificial death on the cross necessary for eternal life. The eating of his flesh and drinking his blood metaphorically symbolized the need for accepting Jesus' cross work. But then the note says, for the Jews, a crucified Messiah was unthinkable, which is really unfortunate since the whole Old Testament system is about sacrificing animals, saying without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins, the whole Passover ritual is all about sacrificing a lamb, the Day of Atonement is all about sacrificing a representative animal sacrifice, and Isaiah 53 goes into great detail saying the Messiah is going to be crucified for our sins. So the fact that they missed it wasn't because God didn't give them enough information. Now, a study Bible that I think is the best an underrated study Bible. The best underrated study Bible, I should say, is called the Nelson Study Bible. I don't think it's even in print anymore. I only bought it because back in the day when we used to drive on 45 to just north of Houston and then make a left to go home for Christmas, there used to be, I guess there's still a mall just uh, south of Huntsville that uh, kind of had uh, you know those, uh, what do you call those malls, that have cut rate, discount, outlet mall, yeah. And they had a Christian bookstore. Now, uh, kids, if you're under 40, there was a time there were physical brick-and-mortar Christian bookstores with books. There are a few, but they're dying. Everybody buys it on uh, the uh, the internet, and that's okay, I guess, as long as uh, somebody who's a believer is making money off of it. But anyway, yeah, the only reason I bought this Nelson Study Bible 20 years ago is because it was on sale. Instead of 79.99, it was 7.99, and I'm going to buy that even if it's heretical. It's just such a good deal, you know. <laughs> But uh, this is what they say. It's very similar. I'm not sure. This was this has been around longer than the I'm not sure they would copy that they were probably one copy. Ease my flesh, drinks my blood. Jesus has made it abundantly clear in this context. Isn't that what we're talking about, Betty? Context? That everlasting life is gained by believing. The terms are believing. Verse 29, verse 35, verse 40, verse 47. These verses about eating, fleshing, eating the flesh, drinking the blood, teach that the benefits of Christ's death must be appropriated by faith by each individual. So I think that's a nice way to say it. And again, if you've got 15 minutes and somebody's really interested in Bible study, you can walk them through that passage. Uh, if you don't have any time but you've got two minutes, should the elevator pitch just punt to 640. 6.40 says, This is the will of my Father. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes has everlasting life. I'll raise him up the last day. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you know, you, you've got to be raised up on the last day kind of thing. So those are parallel. Those are kind of, I would say, fraternal twin passages. So take this to heart. Context is key. And I think this, this statement about eating the flesh, drinking the blood, which our Lord uses, is a great example of, of a key characteristic of his teaching ministry. He often says things that could be, I say, simply understood if you simply take them apart from context. Somebody's trying to explain the 2016 election said uh, the elites took Trump literally and not seriously. The voters took Trump seriously but not literally. And I often tell you, that it's not what people say, it's what they mean by what they say that determines what they're talking about. If I say the other day it rained cats and dogs, am I talking about small mammals falling out of the sky? That's a figure of speech. If you don't know that figure of speech and somebody says that in the Bible, you going to say they thought small mammals fell out of the sky when it, when it rained. They don't believe that at all. That's not what they're saying. So the Lord's not saying break the law, and physically eat my physical flesh and eat my blood. He's talking about a graphic metaphor for appropriating him as the object of saving faith. But you're going to have to think deeply about that in its context. You might not figure that out. You can easily rip that out of context and say, look, the Romans were right; Those Christians were cannibals. They also, the other thing they said about us, Hal, the early Romans, we were atheists. Now, how in the world could they say we were atheists? Are there any verses that say, unless you're an atheist, you're not going to the kingdom of God? No. Because we didn't believe in their gods. We didn't believe in their gods. We believed there was one God. Three persons. So we were all atheists. You know, Hannibal's an atheist. Isn't that something? And yet the thing blows up in a good way. You know? You can't stop it. Right? So let me just ask you, have you believed in Jesus? Have you eaten his flesh and drank his blood? I mean, this is pretty audacious. You know, and you might think, just like a preacher, using big terms on Sunday mornings when I don't want to think, you got to think above the fifth grade level to get this, but you can do it. And if your kids don't get it at lunch, go over it for them, tough. They can get it, you know? Uh, in their Bible. Get their Bible out and show them what it means and show them five times it says believe and now he's saying it in a way you can't forget it and you can't walk away and think uh, you're okay unless you really get it, right? Now, well, let me just read what I said. Have you believed in Jesus? Trusting Jesus alone for eternal life is audacious. It's pretty audacious. It's offensive to people. You actually, you actually think you can believe in somebody from two thousand years ago, active, to trust, and you are going to go to heaven when you die? Are you kidding? Don't you know it's only people that are progressive and are trying to help the poor people that are actually going to earn that? Well, actually, it's not something you can earn. But just trusting in somebody you've never seen for eternal life is pretty audacious. So it shouldn't be surprised that occasionally Jesus describes that whole process in an audacious way. Now, what does the word audacious mean? This is your word for the day. I can't spell it, but I do know what it means. You know why? I looked it up. Okay. <laughs> audacious means extremely bold or daring. That's pretty bold to say you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, even though he knew they wouldn't, if they thought about it, wouldn't think he was talking literally. Extremely original. I'd say Jesus is extremely original. But I think the, what the the best description would be bold in defiance of convention. I mean, if you take it literally, he's saying let's break the Old Testament law. And plus, after he's all eaten up, I guess nobody else goes to heaven, right? <laughs> Recklessly bold in defiance of convention, right? Jesus does that. Now, sometimes we get too comfortable with how audacious Jesus person and claims really are right and we kind of homogenize it right uh, but trust me uh, this idea that we can trust christ and have salvation as a gift is repulsive to religious thinkers and we're all kind of religious in our fall we're kind of all religiously oriented we think we have got a salvation is a diy what does diy stand for do-it-yourself project or at least jesus builds a bridge halfway and we build the other half of the bridge or something like that um, if you are a believer, and I put your name there, you can be tough, brumley. I wish my, I wish my name. I wish I had a nickname like tough. Um, my, my nickname in high school was slicer. You know, which isn't good because I had kind of this early screwball that sliced, and I hit my drives with a slight curve to the right. You know, uh, you know, as a conservative uh, thinker. I'm often, you know, talk too long and too far to the right. And as a golfer, I'm very short and too far to the right, you know, because I tend to leak it to the right a little bit. But, uh, yeah, just put your name in the blank. Believers, Dustin Wiley, Stan Heath, Jenny Heath, Debbie McCoy, who's probably driving home from Tulsa now. she got to go visit the kids this weekend. Uh, must be clear about... Just how audaciously awesome Jesus is, and we need to live consistently with that. And trust me, it's going to be offensive to some people. Okay, you don't have to be among the elites at, at uh, university level uh, to get some flack for actually believing this stuff. But I mean, you know, you've overcome the world. First John says when you believe Jesus is the Christ, because the world wants you to believe anything about Him, good, bad, or ugly, except that He is the issue, and the issue of eternal life. So um, I'll close with this. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be more than enough evidence to convict you based on how you conduct yourself at work, on business trips, after the Kiwanis Club meetings, during the Kiwanis Club meetings, you know, or maybe uh, during first hour on Sundays? I don't know. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that you give us clear statements, easy to understand truths that get repeated a lot for our baseline And then when we see an audacious, amazing, graphic, unforgettable metaphor like this, eating flesh, drinking blood, we know it's not talking about cannibalism. It's talking about personal appropriation of Jesus from the depth of our heart. And for those of us who have trusted by your grace in the saving merits of Jesus Christ, help us to realize just how amazing he truly is let him be the celebrity of our life, not some baseball player, singer, dancer, or entertainer, although we may appreciate their talents. Uh, if there's anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart moved information from their head by your efficacious grace to the, from their head, I should say, to their heart, open their heart to see and believe, to throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus, daring to believe that even though they are sinners, they've broken your standards, they break their own standards at their worst, and they can't fix it. Jesus can. He's paid the debt for them. And if we will say to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I trust you because you died for my sins and rose again. I receive you as my Savior. You'll give that person the gift of eternal life. Uh, we give you praise, glory, and honor that God the Father, you are the author of this plan. Lord Jesus, you are the active agent of this plan. And God, the Holy Spirit, you are the activating agent where you draw us and regenerate us when we believe. So help us uh, to reorient when we bump into passages like this. Let's go back into the context, see what has clearly been said before or after, and uh, make us better students, but more importantly, better uh, Christians as we realize the great awesomeness of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.